0: This is Steve Thompson, and today we're going to pick up in our Genesis story right after Jacob, with the help of his mom Rebecca, deceived his dad Isaac to receive his brother's blessing. This is the rest of Genesis 27 and the first nine verses of chapter 28. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme... I will soon be mourning my father's death, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But Rebekah heard about Esau's plans, so she sent for Jacob and told him, Listen, Esau is consoling himself by plotting to kill you, so listen carefully, my son. Get ready and flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay there with him until your brother cools off. When he calms down and forgets what you have done to him, I will send for you to come back. Why should I lose both of you in one day?" Then Rebekah said to Isaac, "I am sick and tired of these local Hittite women. I would rather die than see Jacob marry one of them." So Isaac called for Jacob, blessed him, and said, "You must not marry any of these Canaanite women. Instead, go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of the grandfather, your grandfather, Bethuel, and marry one of your uncle Laban's daughters. May God Almighty bless you and give you many children, and may your descendants multiply and become many nations. May God pass on to you and your descendants the blessings he promised Abraham. May you own this land where you are now living as a foreigner, for God gave this land to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Patanaram to stay with his uncle Laban, his mother's brother, the son of Bethuel the Aramean. Esau knew that his father Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to find a new wife, and that, he warned, and that he had warned Jacob, you must not marry a Canaanite woman. He also knew that Jacob had obeyed his parents and God to Padan Aram. It was now very clear to Esau that his father did not like the local Canaanite women. So Esau visited his uncle Ishmael's family and married one of Ishmael's daughters in addition to the wives he already had. His new wife's name was Mahalath. She was the sister of Nebaioth and the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. And this would take the term kissing cousins to a whole nother level. Can I just throw out this label, dysfunctional family? Uh, From the way Isaac and Rebecca get together, You think that this is going to be one of those happily ever after deals, but they end up facing the same kind of infertility issues that Abraham and Sarah experienced, and it takes 20 years before they conceive their twin boys. But the sibling rivalry runs deep in the family, so deep that the boys battle over the status of firstborn starting from the moment their mom begins to give birth to them. And then to accentuate the problem, the parents decide to pick favorites. This just pours fuel on the conflict and is a huge red flag that there are probably much deeper problems in their marriage. I'm certain that even the original readers no doubt shook their heads in disbelief at the level of dysfunction here. But the impressive theme that we discover again is that God's commitment to his promise cannot be hijacked by our stupidity. And on the flip side of that same coin, I think what I'm struck with in this passage is God's capacity to let the consequences of our decisions catch up with us so that he can use them to shape us. Esau, this hairy beast of a guy, lives for the now. He'll exchange his future for pleasure in the moment. And somehow he completely misses the fact that his family didn't appreciate marrying girls from their neighborhood. I don't know if they just didn't communicate this expectation clearly, or if Esau was just blissfully unaware of their desires as he passionately pursued his own desires, but it takes Isaac sending Jacob to their home country, where Abraham's tribe lived and also where Rebekah's family still lived, for Esau to finally clue into this. And his solution to it is both impulsive and probably still less than pleasing for his parents. It ends up costing him the things he never knew he wanted most—his parents' approval and blessing. Jacob comes across as the weasley conniver, underhandedly stealing all of the privilege due his older brother, so he loses his relationship with his brother and he ends up getting sent away from his family altogether, not seeing any of them for another twenty years. Rebecca thinks she's big enough to handle the consequences of her actions or her son's actions. But would she have risked all that if she knew that she would not get to see Jacob again, ever again? She would die. Isaac seems to choose blindness. His physical blindness only covers an attitude of blindness to how this whole family dynamic is playing out, and he ends up feeling like a pawn or an absentee father. We don't see Isaac in the narrative again until he dies decades later. You'd think he's on the verge of it now, but decades later, this was the covenant family, the ones through whom God was determined to bring knowledge of himself and rescue and blessing for all the nations, this dysfunctional family. And he did. He was faithful. He fulfilled his promises and still blessed every one of them immensely. So here's the thought that strikes me. God treats us much the same. We are completely bathed in grace, made a part of his family, given a completely new status in the cosmos and outlook on life. And yet, even as we follow Jesus, full of the spirit and with the greatest of intentions, we frequently mess up. And when we do, no matter what the scale of our failure, God in his mercy, allows us to experience the consequences of our mistakes and he uses them to teach us to shape our character and to draw us closer to him. I just want to note here that I think we should follow God's lead as a parent with our own kids. We do them such a disservice in robbing them precious learning experiences by rescuing them from natural consequences. But that's a total aside for those of you who are parents. I guess I'm more concerned with where I'm at right now. What are the circumstances I find myself in, especially the ones that are uncomfortable and even painful? What decisions have I made that have brought me to this place? What decisions did I fail to make that slid me here by default? Where am I pointing the finger at others and blaming when I'd be better served looking for where I'm responsible for this problem? This reminds me that uh, I picked up a brand new practice last week from a book that I'm reading, uh, a kind of a tool for fighting with your spouse. And it will work for any relationship, but I imagine it's especially important for marriage relationships. So here it is. When you're fighting and you're finding yourself getting particularly heated and emotional, and it feels like you're going in circles or you're starting to say hurtful things, then it's time to take a time out. You aren't just calling off the fight only to bury it and not deal with it. You do plan on coming back within a reasonable amount of time to keep talking. But in that cooling off period, your assignment is to start thinking through all the ways in which you personally are responsible for contributing to the problem that you're fighting about. Both of you do this. Then when you've had time to think clearly, you both come back with different attitudes both wanting to take responsibility for the part you played in creating the problem. And now you both have a path to move forward. Steps you each can take to change the outcome. I can hear you thinking, yeah, that doesn't sound very realistic, Tomps. I know I don't naturally tend to fight this way, but what have you got to lose by trying? This, isn't actually the main point of our story this morning, but it is where God's getting my attention right now. Where do I need to take responsibility for the circumstances that I'm currently experiencing? What if those circumstances are actually consequences that the Lord has allowed us to wander into so that we can make a course correction? I think it's worth meditating on. Dad in heaven, I'm routinely humbled by the grace you extend to us and by the same token I'm fearful and nervous about owning up to the problems that I've created with my decisions and my behavior. Thank you for not allowing us to live in a blind spot, but for graciously shining in the light where you're wanting to free us from destructive dysfunction in our own lives. For those of us about to take some inventory of our lives right now, would you please compassionately walk us through what you're needing us to see? In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.